During these past weeks and months of practice, we've talked at different times about the vastness of the vision of the Dharma, the vastness of the Buddha's vision and understanding. The wandering through samsara, the wandering through lifetimes, this process of birth and death and rebirth, without a known beginning. We've alluded to different realms of existence, different planes of existence, the lower realms and the human realm and the higher, Deva and Brahma, planes of existence. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's this amazingly vast system, not only of these 31 planes of existence, but of innumerable world systems, each including these 31 planes. Talks about immensities of time, you know, eons and kalpas and mahakalpas, and just extends outward in this vast, vast immensities of time. Although we may have tremendous faith and tremendous confidence in the teachings of the Buddha, still for most of us, these things are outside of the range of our direct experience. You may hear about them and either connect or not connect so strongly, but for the most part they are not what we experience directly in our practice. But there's another way of understanding the vastness of the Dharma and the depth of this journey that we're on. A way that we can understand it for ourselves in our own experience. And that is when we begin to open to and investigate and look at the nature of consciousness itself really becomes a journey into the vastness of the mind. Not a journey outward into other world systems, but a journey inward into the very nature of consciousness. And in a very fundamental way, that is what the practice is about. That's what we're doing here. What is consciousness? What is this process of consciousness? What is the mind? And how does it create all the various worlds that we find ourselves in? How does it create the world of physicality, of materiality? How does it create the emotional worlds which we inhabit? Where are they arising from? They're arising from the mind. How does mind create, how does consciousness create the intellectual world that we live in? The whole world of intellectual construct, which defines for us so much of our lives, almost all of our lives. How 
How does consciousness create our spiritual world, the spiritual understanding? This mind is a tremendously powerful energy. It is creating all these things. It's creating all the dimensions of our experience, all these different worlds. It creates the whole of samsara. And what becomes so powerful and fascinating about the practice is that we can experience this very directly simply through looking, simply through observing, when we know how to do it, when we develop the tools for this observation. The Buddha said something very telling about the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness. He said that it can be our worst enemy or our best friend. I'd like to read to you from the, from the words of the Buddha. He's talking about the mind. No other thing do I know that is so intractable as an undeveloped mind. No other thing do I know, O monks, that is so tractable as a developed mind. No other thing do I know that brings so much suffering as an undeveloped and uncultivated mind. And no other thing do I know that brings so much happiness as a developed and cultivated mind. A developed and cultivated mind brings happiness indeed. This mind of ours, this consciousness, can be the worst enemy, can create the most suffering or the most beneficent friend. And we can see it. This is not some mystical utterance. It's really very common sense when we look at our lives and look at our experience. We can see the suffering that's created by the mind and in the mind very clearly, very obvious, in situations of mental illness. where the mind gets so caught up in images and thoughts and emotions, in particular fantasies, where they're so caught up and so identified that there is no space at all. It's as if in that situation we become imprisoned in this particular, particular mind phenomenon that might be quite fearful, quite terrible. This suffering of the mind that's created in the mind is much greater than the suffering of the body. And the Buddha talked often of how the suffering of the mind far exceeds the particular pain we might feel in the body, no matter how painful the body might become. We can see the power of the mind not only in perhaps more extreme cases of mental illness, but even in our more ordinary, deluded states. And many opportunities to observe that. You know, just those times when the mind becomes obsessed by different thought loops, 
You know, just those loops, those tapes that keep coming back again and again and again. And to the extent that we get caught, we get trapped by that. There's a tremendous amount of suffering that is mind-created. Or in emotions that continually overwhelm us. We can see the power of the mind again very clearly in our own experience or people we know that are close to us in addictions to certain actions even when we know that the actions bring suffering. And it's so amazing to watch oneself go ahead and do something again and again and again that we know is not going to bring happiness, it's going to cause some pain. And yet the force of the addiction in the mind is so strong that we're caught. This is coming out of the mind. This is coming out of consciousness. There are many times in our lives when we can see this power of the mind in very ordinary circumstances, in the ordinary interrelationships of our lives, they really could be seen as moments of temporary insanity. You know, at times when we don't understand how to let go of resentment, or anger, or envy, or jealousy, or hatred. And there's no understanding of how to let go of that we get trapped by this kind of mental suffering. We see the power of mind very clearly on retreat. A situation you're very familiar with, of yogi mind, where things loom very large. Things come up in the mind, and when there's not a wise attention to what's arising, and know, a clear comprehension about it. Here in Barry, we often have the window wars. In Burma, there were the fan wars. <laughs> and it got so bad at one point, there was one group of yogis who liked the fans on in the hall, because it was so hot. And one group of yogis who felt it was too drafty and didn't want the fans on. And at one point in Burma, two people actually came to blows over the fans. This is in the context of a, medi- of a monastery, a meditation center, people practicing mindfulness and compassion and love. <laughs> fan on, fan off. <laughs> there was one course in Oregon where a yogi wrote to the manager of the course asking them to write to the airlines to redirect the flight routes of the, air, of the airplanes going over because it was too disturbing. I'm sure for that yogi, I'm sure it felt, this is really a great idea. <laughs> we'll just ride to the airline and they'll understand and they'll do it. <laughs> Things take on such a, such a powerful aspect when we're sitting. 
sometimes it, it creates a lot of suffering. Sometimes it's simply humorous. But sometimes we get so caught that there's real suffering. This is all mind created. Sometimes people feel this suffering created by the mind uh, even in coming into interviews. And now I felt that for a long time with Upandita. You know, he's, he's quite stern at times. And <laughs> the first year that I practiced, I was terrified of going there. I would sit out in the hall. It was really hard. And finally, one day I just told him, you know, coming in here is like going to the dentist. <laughs> you know, this kind of dread of coming in. This is, he didn't do anything. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> but this, the mind just creates this fear and anxiety and dread and all kinds of things. One of the great, great insights into the nature of the mind and all of these kinds of sufferings that I mentioned is that in a very fundamental way, we're making it all up. We're just making it up. For whatever reason, the conditioning behind our making it all up may be very strong. And so there may be a whole process of unmaking it. We're making it all up. We can see mind being very powerful in positive ways as well. Not only can it be our worst enemy at times, it can be the most beneficent friend, our greatest ally. The mind of this process of consciousness, there's an unfathomable wellspring of creativity. And we, we connect more and more with it as our minds become more silent. As we quiet down a bit, tremendous creativity. Tremendous wellspring of kindness. You know, and of compassion, as we begin to lose some of our self-centeredness, self-referential um, attitudes, the nature of consciousness, or aspects of consciousness, begin to express themselves in outstanding qualities and actions of kindness, of compassion, of love. You know, and it's so inspiring. There are so many examples of women and men who are truly heroic in their lives, in a whole range of circumstances, that also is all coming from the mind. When we understand this, it gives greater import to the very first line of the Dhammapada. The mind is the forerunner of all things. Our world is created out of this process of consciousness of the mind. As we observe things, as we observe the mind and phenomena, one thing stands out with tremendous clarity. Again, this is something that we deep in our insight into, but it's not difficult 
either to understand or to perceive. And that is our increasing and growing understanding of the impermanence of things. That wherever we look, subjectively or objectively, it's all a process of change. And we can see that. We can see it very directly. This, this understanding of impermanence has two sides to it. One side, which is usually emphasized here more than the other, is the unsatisfying nature of phenomena because of the impermanence. You know, we see everything changing, everything that we were attached to for security, we were holding on to for safety, we see it disappearing, dissolving, momentary. And so we begin to get a sense of the unsatisfying quality of phenomena precisely because it's so momentary. There's no safety, there's no refuge, there's nothing to hold on to. And when we see that, we begin to let go a little bit. But there's another side to impermanence. It's not only, the implication is not only that things are unsatisfying because of it. The other way of understanding impermanence is that it's precisely because things do change that we have the potential to become Buddha. Just think how it would be if things didn't change. Then we would be in trouble. (laughs) And so there's a very creative, positive side to this understanding of the changing nature of things. It becomes tremendously empowering to understand that the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, is not fixed. It's not static. When we begin to see and understand and perceive the basic principle of conditionality, of how this leads to that, how everything is conditioned by causes of what leads to what, we begin to understand how this whole process of life, of our lives, is happening. That it's not fixed and it's not static. It is a process of conditionality which when we understand, we can actually direct in our lives. We can fashion our lives precisely because of this conditionality of things, of one thing leading to another, conditioning another. It's precisely because of that that we can come to a place of real peace. The fundamental understanding about the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, is that consciousness itself is pure. Consciousness means that which knows. It's the knowing faculty. It's this universal power of knowing. That's all. 
So in this knowing, in this cognizant faculty, there's clarity, there's lucidity, there's a kind of brightness, not necessarily or particularly a visible brightness, but a brightness of clarity, a brightness of lucidity. And the power of this knowing is so amazing. It is What's amazing to me is that it is both tremendously mysterious and at the same time extraordinarily commonplace. This knowing, this consciousness is happening in every single moment. Knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, of a thought, of a sensation. You know, with great power, knowing different world systems, or knowing past lives, or whatever range the knowing has. Knowing all the factors which arise in the mind. You know, along with the consciousness of greed, and hatred, and generosity, and love, and compassion, and mindfulness. It's consciousness which knows all this. Sometime as you're going through the day, just to get a taste or a sense of the mystery of it, of this very ordinary thing that's happening, we see something, or we hear something, what is it that's knowing? What is this consciousness? We don't have to do anything to make it happen. It's happening continuously, all by itself, doing its job of knowing. Does it seem as much of a mystery to you as it does to me? Because I'm amazed by it. This fundamental purity of consciousness this fundamental purity of knowing, it's described in many traditions. This is not just how it's described in one particular tradition, you know, of spirituality or of Buddhism. It's described in many traditions. This is from the Pali Canon. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, is shining and glowing forth, but it is stained by the calaises or defilements which visit it. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant, shining, and glowing forth, and from the uprooting of the calaises which visit it, it is freed. This is from a Tibetan text. It's called the Song of Mahamudra. The essence of mind is like space, Therefore, there is nothing which it does not encompass. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots and no home. Nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. 
The nature of the mind is luminous. Once the mind is truly seen, discrimination stops. So there are two very important principles here. If we want to begin to understand and see, experience directly the nature of this mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of knowing, two very important principles. One is that the consciousness itself is pure. And that it can be conditioned or colored by different states which visit it. But sometimes we lose sight of the essential radiance, the essential purity, and we get identified with the visitors. I'd like to read something from Ajahn Chah. Who's this? Wonderful Thai forest monk and meditation master. He calls it a taste of freedom. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. Before I go on, when you listen to teachings about the nature of the mind, the words themselves are a pointing out. And so if you can listen in a way so that the words are actually pointing you to the experience of the nature of the mind, then there's a tremendous power. There's a special way to actually listen to these words. They're pointing to something which you can experience in the very moment of listening. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. It is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them. 
to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. That's the first aspect of consciousness, which we can see and experience directly when we look, when we look at this knowing mind within ourselves in each moment. Consciousness itself is pure, it's already pure, and it can be colored or conditioned by visiting impressions. The second aspect of understanding consciousness is that it isn't static. Consciousness itself comes into existence because of conditions. And so this is tremendously, uh, it's a tremendously powerful insight because it takes away the possibility of then identifying with consciousness or with the knowing, with the witness. Because we see that the consciousness itself is simply arising out of conditions. It too is empty, empty of self, empty of I. This very knowing comes as conditions come into place. So a question can arise. And that is, how can we abide in this natural purity of the mind? If the mind is already peaceful, is already clear, is already radiant, is already shining, how come it doesn't often feel like that? And how can we access it? How can we abide in it? Buddha often used the image of, or metaphor of training a wild monkey or a wild elephant. When we begin our practice, and for a long time in our practice, we see how unruly the mind is. It's tremendously unruly, untamed. And over the last few months, Perhaps the most powerful insight that has emerged is the direct seeing, the unmistakable seeing of how fickle this mind is, which is an important insight. Most people are are unaware of this nature. This is a verse from the Dhammapada, and it's so wonderful to me because... When you read, you know, we're reading texts that go back 2,500 years, it's talking to just the same condition that we find ourselves in. It's the same quality of mind. It's not that somehow back then, you know, people didn't face the same problems that we face right now. As the Buddha saying in the Dhammapada, a wise person should pay attention to the mind which is difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases, 
one who keeps a rein on the wandering mind, which strays far and wide, alone, bodiless, will be freed from the tyranny of Mara. One who keeps a rein on the wandering mind will be freed from the tyranny of Mara. So we can see our practice as this gradual taming of the mind, which enables us not to create the purity of consciousness. That is already there. That is the nature of consciousness. The taming of the mind allows us to stabilize ourselves in it. So we begin resting in this place of natural purity, of natural radiance. It's another short verse from the Song of Mahamudra, which so well describes the progress of a yogi. At first, a yogi feels their mind tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. And in the end, it is like a great vast ocean. In the beginning, the mind is tumbling like a waterfall. But we train it, we pay attention begins to flow on more slowly and more gently. And finally it becomes like a great vast ocean. As we're observing the nature of this very unsteady mind and beginning to tame it, begin this process of taming and training, what happens is that we develop a tremendously heightened sensitivity to the visiting gilesas. We become so aware of these defilements or unwholesome factors of mind which come to visit. And for many yogis, you know, as, as we begin to get into our practice, it almost feels like the practice is making them worse. You know, we never knew we had so much whatever, you know, desire or anger or fear or whatever our particular collection might be. But what's happening, and, and again this was recognized by the Buddha and, and so many teachers, as a cloth becomes cleaner, the stains become more and more obvious. It's not that there are more stains on the cloth, it's that we're seeing them with much greater clarity. In a dirty cloth, the stains are obscured. As our minds become stiller, as they become more spacious, we see these visiting defilements very clearly. What is so helpful to us, not only in the carrying on of our lives, but in the course of meditation practice itself, and what helps to undercut the strong propensity to self-judgment and self-condemnation, is remembering and seeing again and again the truth 
that the kalesas which come are not inherent in the mind. They come as visitors. They're arising because of certain conditions. They are not the nature of consciousness. They are not inherent. It's as if someone comes to the door. We have a choice then. We can invite them in, or we can say, no, thank you. We don't need to take responsibility for them coming to the door. That's not our part. Our part is in what we do at that moment. So the key element here of wise discrimination is recognition. When someone comes to the door, we need to recognize. And somebody, when some quality arises in the mind, we need to know, is this wholesome, is this unwholesome? Is this a kalesa, a defilement of mind? Is this something that's productive, that will lead to happiness? In case we're not sure, well, maybe we don't know what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. Out of great compassion, the Buddha told us. So, I'll pass it on. And what, O yogis, are the defilements of mind? (laughs) Covetousness and greed are defilements of mind. Ill will is a defilement of the mind. Anger, hostility, denigration is a defilement of the mind. Envy, domineering, jealousy, hypocrisy, fraud are defilements of mind. Obstinacy, presumption, conceit, arrogance, vanity, negligence are defilements of mind. So we need, we need to recognize, we, we need to recognize these states because so often as they come, we have so many rationales for why it's good that they're there. Well, I should be angry. Or whatever. Whatever the particular justifications may be. But if we can recognize, yes, this visitor that wants to invite itself in. This is a cause of obscuration. This is a cause of suffering. This is going to prevent our abiding in the natural purity. That is the mind. That is already there. That recognition becomes very powerful for us. Becomes the vehicle for discriminating wisdom. So when we have these understandings, the understanding of the nature of consciousness, that is, its essential purity, its essential lucidity, this, simply the power of knowing, and it's happening every moment, 
the knowing of any of the sense impressions, knowing of what's ever arising in the mind. This immense power of consciousness is inherently pure. And if we understand the power of the visiting kalesas, if we recognize both sides of this, then we learn to practice with two extremely important uh, qualities. And those are the qualities of effort and surrender. This is a tremendously subtle balance that we need to come to. Balance between making strong effort and at the same time surrender. Effort is needed. A strong, a resolute effort is needed to create conditions in any circumstance for what we want to accomplish. If we want to accomplish something, we need to be able to draw on the strength of our energy to do it. We see it in terms of worldly happiness. If we want ordinary worldly happiness, we need to understand what will create it, and then to actually make the effort to do it. And the Buddha laid that out too. He laid out that path. What are the conditions for worldly happiness? He said, generosity, practice generosity. Practice morality, non-harming. These are the conditions which create happiness for people in the world. If we want to accomplish a mental calm, a mental peace, we need to make the effort to create the conditions for it. It doesn't just drop down. It comes because of conditions. When we make the effort, we come back to the object. We keep coming back and back. We focus, we steady. After some time, yes, the mind actually does become calm. We accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. If we want to accomplish the happiness of insight, we need to put forth the effort to do that to be really mindful. How are things happening? What is arising in each moment? Can we be mindful of the breath, of a thought, of a sound, of a sensation, each moment as it presents itself, to be there for it? But effort alone, this side alone, can sometimes and sometimes quite easily get out of balance. It can lead to a kind of striving, or it can lead to ambition, or it can lead to expectation. And all of those things, the striving and the ambition and the expectation, all of those actually obscure the natural clarity of the mind, the natural radiance of mind. So we need to balance, we need to understand effort in a very mature way. So we can arouse the energy to accomplish, to create the conditions for what we want, and at the same time to know about surrender. We need to be able to surrender to what is happening, to what is present. 
Now in English, surrender has a very interesting, very interesting connotation, so it's important not to be confused by the word. Surrender in this case doesn't mean giving in to something. It doesn't mean identifying with something. Surrender in this sense means receptivity. It means a mindful awareness or a mindful opening to what is actually there. And so in our practice, the meditation becomes a perfect balance of receptivity and insight. I'd like to read something which you might get enlightened listening to. It's a beautiful teaching about this balance of receptivity which reveals the essential radiance, clarity of the mind and the clarity of investigation. It's a teaching of Kensi Rinpoche, who was, he was one of the great, great Tibetan meditation masters. He died very recently, just a couple of months ago. He represented, in Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition, there was a movement called the Rime movement, which, which uh, sought to overcome all the sectarian differences between the different sects to really come to the unified understanding of Buddha Dharma. Very, a very beautiful and powerful uh, teaching. He was known often, he was an immense presence, both physically and spiritually. And he was known as the great ocean. And when you were with him, that's how you felt. You felt like you were in the presence of the great ocean. So I'll just read a little bit of this. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in exactly the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, 
the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. To gain control over the mind, we need to be vigilant, constantly examining our thoughts and words and actions. To cut through the mind's clinging, it is important to understand that all appearances are void, like the appearance of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind, nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the ties of hope and fear, attraction and repulsion, and remain in equanimity in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than projections of your own mind. To realize that appearance and voidness are one is what is called simplicity. To realize that appearance and voidness are one is what is called simplicity. No intrinsic reality in phenomena arising because of conditions. At a certain point in our practice, you know, through this constant vigilance, attention, mindfulness, where we recognize all of these thought forms, all of these manifestations, these displays of phenomena in the mind, as we practice it at a certain point, we begin to rest in this natural mindfulness, in this awareness. The awareness and mindfulness and simplicity begins to happen by itself. We actually become this current of experience moment to moment, not outside of it watching it. As we see into the nature of consciousness itself, into the nature of the mind, the nature of this knowing. And again, it's at the same time both this incredible mystery, how it is that knowing happens in each moment, and at the same time it is so ordinary. As we see directly for ourselves into the nature of this mind, the nature of knowing, the nature of cognizance, which is happening moment to moment, is a tremendous faith and confidence which begins to arise in us. Because we see, we know, yes, this is how things are happening. We're no longer deluded by all of these thought forms, all of these displays in the mind. As Ajahn Chah said in the earlier quotation, we're not simply carried away by all these moods. Practice comes to a point where it is the Dhamma practicing the Dhamma. And there's a tremendous joy in that. 
we become the Dhamma unfolding. What's often mentioned, and I think it's so helpful to reflect on, is the preciousness of this human birth. And the Buddha talked of the different aspects of it which make it so precious and so rare for us. The first is taking birth itself as a human being because of the possibility of coming to an understanding of this mind. And to be in a place where the Dharma is taught and practiced and having access to it and having a clear teaching about it and having the time and inclination an actual intent to practice. These are all tremendously rare in this world. Let's close with something else by Kensi Rinpoche. Ask yourselves how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do so? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. This reflection on the preciousness and rarity of putting the Dharma into practice, I think both inspires or can inspire great energy and also tremendous self-respect. What you're doing, what we're all doing, is very rare in this world. So there should be tremendous respect for this endeavor. sit for a few minutes.
as you sit and feel each breath or sensation or thought, look carefully. What is it that knows? What is it that knows the breath? What is this knowing that knows the sensation, that knows the sound? The knowing is clear, it's lucid, it's empty, it's invisible. And yet has this power of cognizance. Simply knowing this whole display of phenomena. is already pure, already peaceful. Don't be deceived by the impressions which arise. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.